Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Let's turn our focus now to Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi Arabian writer journalist who was killed ostensibly at the Saudi consulate. A high level Turkish official has said that they have evidence about this. This has thrown a lot of diplomatic relations into question, particularly between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia had to or is is having to see corporate leaders move away from the nation. Joining us now to try to give us some insight into the potential impact of this move is Jack Devine, former acting director of the CIA and founding partner and president of security firm, the Arkin Group. Jack, what do you make of this? What's going on here? Well, the news is unfolding by the minute. I mean, it is one of the more bizarre uh, cases that I can remember in terms of diplomacy or in the intelligence world. So uh, what's going on is our one of our most important allies now has a political crisis on its hands, which by extension uh, draws us into it and everybody in, in uh, well, I was just going to say in the Middle East, but also in Europe. So it's, it's a big story that has to be resolved. How could it be resolved? Well, the Blue Book would tell you uh, that when you get a crisis like this, uh, the the focus of it steps aside and a new person is appointed, okay? Uh, unfortunately, uh, blue, black, uh, blue books are collecting dust on most shelves nowadays. But I think the, I don't think- When you say blue I books, it means rule books. Yeah, the, the, way, the way the game is played, so to speak, whether it's diplomacy, military, there are, all, there are a set of principles upon which each of the people in those fields of endeavor operate, right? So you would say when you get this crisis, for example, when Jack Kennedy uh, ran into the Bay of Pigs and it turned into a fiasco, he told Alan Dulles, the director of CIA, it was a fiasco, one of us has to go, I'm president, you're, you're resigning, you're fired. So uh, no matter where, who's culpable here, somebody has to take a fall on it, a new person comes into it. That's the only way you can move forward. Uh, dying every day, a slice, salami slice at a time, is a really difficult uh, policy. This, the sooner this thing can be set right, the better it is for everybody. Wait, 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 hold on a second. Said right, because this has been sort of the focus of a lot of articles that have been written, which is how can Saudi Arabia and the U.S. join forces to sort of spin this in the right way to be able to continue things as things were before? Am I characterizing that correctly? Because that seems to be the way that no, I'm I think reading it. I, I would agree with that, Lisa. Other than the word spin, I don't think spin is viable. In other words, I think the more you try and spin, the de- this is one where... You have to get as close to the truth as possible. And I would hope that, you know, we just saw that our Secretary of State was out there in the desert. And, you know, I, I think the point is to make clear what we think is uh, is known and that the story needs not to wander too far from that. So how should the U.S. react if indeed the Saudi Arabian leadership led by Mohammed bin Salman, who has been uh, close with our leadership here in the U.S., how should the U.S. respond if they did just outright kill a critic of their, of their administration? I think the, the burden really begins with the Saudis. The Saudis need to decide how they are going to respond because we are their most important ally, and so are all their other important allies. Um, 
need to be in a zone where it's comfortable dealing with them. So at this point, if the record shows that uh, MBS, uh, uh, the pr uh, crown prince, is involved, then the only way this goes forward is if somehow he steps aside, which is a really high ask. But I think the Saudis have to decide uh, where they're going, and I think we have to stay as close to the reality as possible. I don't think there's – this is not a spin opportunity. Floating, floating, floating ideas is probably one thing to see what's viable, but I think it's a, a huge mistake for anybody to try and work between the lines. You do not know what everyone else knows. So you put out a story the next day, and the story's overtaken because there's more information, credible information put into it. Uh, the, the, the Turks are sitting a lot of information. I suspect that we are others. Uh, people within the Saudi government, you, this is one that's not going to go away easily. Jack, do you believe that U.S. intelligence assets know what happened? I think know what happened uh, covers a lot of territory. I would say that uh, because of our relationships with a lot of foreign governments, our own collection capabilities, I think we'd have a pretty good sense of what happened. What literally happened inside the consulate uh, may not be uh, uh, knowable for some time. Do you believe the Turkish government knows? They say, well, they say and their press says that they do. Um, my own instinct, as opposed to fact, is that they probably know a heck of a lot more than anybody wish they knew. So I'm wondering about the arms deal. I believe it's a $110 billion arms deal that the U.S. has with Saudi Arabia. There have been numerous reports that one reason why President Trump was initially reluctant to sort of castigate uh, Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi Arabian uh, government was because he didn't want to jeopardize this deal. Do you buy that? No, I think it's too small of a piece. I mean, I think there's the bigger relationship. I mean, we're in a you know, and when you look at the Middle East, um, you know, in terms of countering Iran, which is a large part of the last several administrations, you, you have to look at Saudi Arabia as a key, the key player in this. When you look at oil and the oil industry, I mean, I think the deal is, is an important deal. You don't want to see it go up in smoke. But there's uh, an awful lot riding on the overall relationship. It's in everyone's interest to get this thing reset and as i said i and you know if this plays out the way it appears to play out it's going to be very hard to reset it without a change in in uh, in leadership which means mohammed bin salman stepping down or being pushed out of office or out of the leadership that that i mean again i would come back to you know if i were looking at old formulas on how problems are resolved quickly it's to change personnel and the basic relationship stays intact uh, this one is a, seems to me a great deal more difficult than others I've seen in the past because it's not clear to me uh, how much weight the king has or is willing to exert and how much the person that has to step aside is going to be prepared to do that. And um, you know, people's first instinct, as we saw in this case, is to try and weather the storm. It is not weatherable and particularly if the pace of attention stays where it is now. Is there any chance that this reflects a power struggle inside of Saudi Arabia? Well, clearly this has been, a, in my, I shouldn't say clearly, in my view it's been a, a palace coup. The, the MBS coming into power has really, I think, took people by surprise. 
but it's not a singleton. It, it's a, it's a, the predominant faction, but there are a lot of losers, and um, you know there are, uh, the prospects of external forces. In other words, those that have been thrown back, orchestrating something that would remove uh, MBS is unlikely. Any change would have to come from the internal forces. Thank you very much for being with us. Jack Devine, former acting director of the Central Intelligence Agency, founding partner and president of the security firm, the Arkin Group. Return on equity is up 40%. The revenue trend is good. So why is the stock down 13.5% so far this year? I'm talking about Morgan Stanley. And here to help us understand the situation is Chris Whalen. He is the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, why is the stock of Morgan Stanley down when the results seem so good? Well, the results are not bad. Um, there's done a lot of animal spirits in these uh, stocks like Morgan Stanley now. They're asset managers uh, predominantly. They have a banking business, of course, um, but they are really fee-driven. They don't make money on interest rates. So Goldman, Morgan Stanley, all the near banks, if you will, um, are a function of the market. So if they hit some big deals, they make you know good money on the trading investment banking side. Uh, and then the rest is pretty much fixed. Um, you have Treasury, and then you have the asset managers who work for a set fee, right? That's why they like it. It's stable, but it's not exciting. So, no big rush. Chris, I thought City was the best of the bunch so far. Really? Way. Why? Yeah, but just in terms of uh, you know year-over-year comparisons of falling credit costs. You know, all of the, the, the two key factors for the last eight, nine years have been cost-cutting and cheap funding. So, the question is, how do we transition from that? When the banks, you know, a year from now, their funding costs are almost going to be normalized back to where they were in 2008. Uh, more balanced, by the way, between investors and equity, because during the crisis, after the crisis, the bank equity holders got 90 percent of the interest dollar yeah. flowing through banks you know, and the depositors got nothing. Well, I mean, that's actually exactly where I wanted to go with this, right? I mean, we talk about the net interest margins, which have been increasing, but the gap between what big banks are paying people to put their money in their uh, deposit accounts and what the banks are earning from the Fed funds overnight rate has widened dramatically. I mean, I think it's more than a percentage point now on average for the four mm-hmm. biggest banks uh, that they're basically capturing an extra an extra revenue without doing anything. And at what point will they be forced to pay up? Will big banks be forced to offer depositors some uh, additional yield to entice deposits? And and how much could that hurt their earnings? Well, it's already happening. Um, As the Fed balance sheet runs off, you eliminate a dollar of deposits for every dollar in excess reserves. So that's just mechanistic. Um, The other thing, remember, is that the Fed crushed funding costs. In 2011, I think it was literally done like $10 billion for the whole industry for a quarter. So normal is closer to 100. Right now it's about 30, and it's increasing 55, 60% year over year. So by, you know, second quarter next year, the increase in funding costs will be higher than the increase in interest earnings. And that's when you'll see NIM flatten out and go down. Now, Chris, you talked about the Citigroup and their their sort of a report and, and saying that they're better. But I'm just trying to understand, wouldn't this 
wouldn't this whole group benefit from what you described, maybe a low valuation base? Also, cost pressures, you said they're abating. They're expanding the net interest margin. You've got share buyback programs and better than mm-hmm. anticipated EPS growth. Why wouldn't that? Yeah, the business is okay, but for banks that really run off of interest rates, uh, the advantage is ebbing. Um, you know, as I said before, last five years, cost cutting, reserve, reverses, things of that nature, really drove earnings. And then we had the tax bill. The tax bill structurally increased those equity returns you were talking about earlier. So a one-time adjustment, both asset and equity returns after tax, obviously, right? But if you really want to understand the business, you look at the pre-tax line, you look at credit costs and other factors, and they've all been very low. I mean, right now, real estate has gone up so much, Pim, that uh, banks are making money on defaults. In other words, they get all their money back, they sell the defaulted property, and they make money on that. Right. So it's like negative 100%. Uh, so there's no credit issue on the street today. But to your question, you know, it, it's a function of deal flow for Morgan Stanley and for Goldman and the transactional houses. JP has a big component of this. But JP also makes money on interest, not as much as their peers, by the way, because they're big. You know, Marianne Lake would love to be, uh, you know, 50 percent, no, no, maybe 20 percent smaller. She'd get much better equity returns. You know, more manageable business. So, you know, to me, the street is losing their advantage on interest uh, that the Fed gave them uh, very quickly. And I think people have to pay attention to this because NIM is not going to be expanding next year. It's going to be contracting because the cost of funds has gone up so quickly. Chris Whalen, thank you so much for being with us and for that perspective. Chris Whalen is chairman of Whalen Global Advisors and some uh, an interesting trend to watch, Pim, and one that we've been talking about for a long time, which is banks are going to have to start paying their depositors more. And when they do, will that lead to uh, much more disappointing earnings? Although we did see right. strength with deals too. Yeah, but also if you're going to see higher interest rates, that means that if they are really asset gatherers, they're going to be making more on the assets that they gathered. It depends which interest rates go up faster and how. I mean, if we get the flattening yield curve, if they have to pay depositors more. I mean, Ally Bank actually came out with this front page advertisement in the New York Times talking about how the biggest bank heist in the world is going on right now. But we can talk about that later. Well, I know that uh, Paul Sweeney, the uh, U.S. Director of uh, Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, he's got a list of things he's going to watch on Netflix. He's probably already going to tape Fight World, that uh, has already debuted. Then he's got The Haunting of Hill House, as well as Marvel's Daredevil. These are all Netflix, only on Netflix I have a whole new feeling toward Paul Sweeney now. (laughs) Yeah, he's got it all. (laughs) The reason I bring up these only on Netflix productions, Paul, is this is where the money's going, isn't it? It really is. And, uh, you know, for the record, I am a big fan of Ozark. I'm kind of hooked on that, so I'm binging the second season of that. But, uh, yeah, they're going to spend, uh, you know, over $8 billion this year uh, in programming. Um, you know, most of that, a lot of that is original programming. So they're not just licensing movies and TV shows from uh, the networks and the studios. They're, they're producing more and more of their own content. And, they're, and they, they recognize that from their perspective, that is what drives their subscriber growth. That is what their users want. And so they're stepping up the spending there. And maybe even tonight, uh, 
we'll get uh, an, an outlook from the company on what they expect to spend next year. And most investors, um, you know, expect that that number will be even higher than what it is this year. So they are by far the biggest uh, creator of content in Hollywood, uh, the biggest spender uh, on content in Hollywood. And that looks to, to get even bigger going forward. Will this be the year that investors start to care about profitability here? You know, I don't think so. Um, you know, the, the, it's interesting as you segment the company, the, the more mature U.S. business for them already is profitable. And they, and, they, and they showed a pretty good path to profitability there. So we know the business, uh, or investors know the business uh, can be profitable at these expense levels. Uh, internationally, uh, they have not turned a profit corner. Uh, that's a less mature business, but we've seen some markets internationally that have turned profitable. So, uh, but the big question I think for investors is free cash flow. This is a company that has no free cash flow and they'll probably lose a couple $3 billion in free cash flow this year. Um, and so the question is, how do you fund $8 billion or even more of programming? And the answer is you go to the debt markets and you borrow money. And, um, and that's kind of how they're funding it. And so the question is, how long can they continue to do that? And I think increasingly investors are charting, starting to get uh, you know, a little sensitive to the kind of the free cash flow generation of the business. They have more than $8 billion in debt, right? Uh, right. And, uh, you know, the, the debt markets have been very uh, open uh, and very receptive to this credit, even though there's no profits or cash flow to pay back the debt. But, uh, you know, I think they, they look and they see that big uh, equity valuation cushion underneath their debt, supporting their, their debt. And, you know, when you take a look at street consensus numbers, um, this company will not be free cash flow till 2021, maybe 2022. Uh, so they're still uh, ways off from free cash flow. Um, but there is a path. So one question that I have is that Disney is going to take a lot of its content off of Netflix starting at the beginning of next year and they're starting their own streaming service and I have to wonder how big of a competitive concern this is for Netflix and how can we really even determine that? Yeah, um, competition is ramping up, no question about it. That uh, You mentioned Disney. Uh, the big reason that they stepped up and spent $80 billion to buy 21st Century Fox was to get more content um, for uh, their streaming service, which they're going to launch next year. AT&T, which just spent $80 billion buying Time Warner, they announced this week that they, in fact, are getting into the direct-to-consumer streaming business with some of the Warner Brothers content. So competition is absolutely ramping up. Um, and I think Netflix clearly recognized this several years ago, um, and that's when they really started to ramp up their original programming because they knew at some point Hollywood would wisen up and they would uh, you know, start taking back some of their content and that Netflix would need to rely more on original programming. And the good news is, um, you know, it, as long as you have a big checkbook and, and Netflix has a big checkbook, you can get any writer, any talent, any director, uh, any producer uh, to come and make content for you, just like they would make it for one of the big studios. Paul Sweeney, just quickly, I understand that Netflix, with its understanding of the consumer, meaning they know what you watch, they know what you're interested in, they have, able, they have been able to broaden their offering. They're not just talking about series. They've got the stand-up comedy specials. They've got films. They know what you want to watch, don't they? They do. Uh, they have a lot of information because they have a direct relationship with the consumer. They know what the consumer wants, as opposed to a cable network, which uh, has a you know intermediary, which is the cable system, the Comcast or the satellite provider. Uh, they don't own the content. They don't know what their consumers really want. Netflix does. So originally, on the original programming that Netflix created in-house, they knew that their users 
liked uh, Kevin Spacey. Mm-hmm. They knew that their users liked political dramas. So let's create a political drama with Kevin Spacey. Simple as that. And they're, they're using that in international yeah. markets because they're starting to bring up a lot of uh, original programming in international markets. Paul Sweeney, thank you so much for being with us. Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior, Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Fidelity Investments is jumping into the world of cryptocurrency. It is offering to manage digital assets for hedge funds, family offices, and trading firms. And here to tell us more about this particular aspect of the financial industry and Fidelity's response is Aaron Brown. He is the former managing director and head of financial market research at AQR Capital Management. And he is the author of the book, The Poker Face of Wall Street. Aaron Brown, it's always a pleasure to hear your views. Tell us, what do you make of Fidelity offering this digital asset management business? Well, thanks for having me. Um, I think this is mostly important symbolically. Uh, Fidelity's always been, uh, among, among you know, similar financial institutions, they've been a re- relative cheerleader for crypto. And the fact that they're promising in 2019 that they'll offer custody and trading for some of the larger uh, uh, cryptos for some larger investors is uh, sort of a, uh, you know, it's an affirmation of, of uh, the legitimacy and, and the faith they have in crypto. Uh, it doesn't really add a lot. If institutional investors have been dying to pour billions and billions of dollars into crypto, they've had many opportunities since 2017. We had Ledger Act, CME, CBOE offering futures. Uh, Coinbase, Gemini have offered services. We know Northern Trust is, is looking at probably all the other big custodians are looking at this. So I don't think there's a lot of pure news here fundamentally, but it's certainly going to, uh, uh, you know, charge the market and and give a lot of name recognition to people who perhaps don't really know what a custodian is, but uh, but know the fidelity name. Well, Aaron, I'm I'm struck by sort of the risk that is implied by holding something uh, that could potentially evaporate in value. I mean, what is the potential risk? that Fidelity would be taking on if it, you know, really does become a major player and if this market continues to expand? Well, of course, they're, they're a broker, so they're holding these for other people, and, and crypto could go to zero. Um, um, I hope everyone who knows that before they invest. And then Fidelity would be, uh, you know, probably have a lot of customer relation issues. Um, but, but they're offering this to institutional investors who presumably know the rules. Um, I would say the bigger risks to Fidelity as a company are that they get hacked. Now they're planning to put all of these assets in cold storage, which is supposed to be hack-proof, but you know, you're never quite sure. And cold storage can be very vulnerable to an internal a rogue employee, an internal embezzlement or fraud. Um, if there are problems with the pricing, if they sell institutions a lot of assets at you know six thousand dollars a Bitcoin, and it turns out that wasn't really the price that it was being manipulated in some of the shadowy exchanges that crypto trades on, um, I think this kind of thing could be a, a, a big black eye. Or, or if there's a regulatory problem, if if uh, people, if the regulators come in and say this stuff is all illegal, um, I don't. Take that. I don't think those are huge risks today. I think, you know, two years ago, people would have worried a lot more about those things. But I think crypto's mainstream enough that Fidelity's maybe pushing the envelope a little bit. But I would expect to see all the big financial institutions follow suit here. The, uh, the arm of Fidelity uh, that's going to handle this is uh, going to be called Fidelity Digital Assets. And according to Tom Jessup, who runs uh, that business, 
They've been mining Bitcoin since 2015. Can you give us your views on mining Bitcoin and Bitcoin as a proxy for this world of cryptocurrencies? Yeah, I mean, I mean, mining was, I, I started mining in 2013, and, and you know, I quickly got, uh, you know, pushed out of that business. You need to be really big now. Fidelity's obviously big enough to, to do it if they want. Uh, it's not a hugely profitable business anymore, but, uh, but you know, it, 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 it pays the bill, but it's a very good way. I always tell people who want to invest in crypto, listen, mine a little bit. You know, you're not going to get rich doing it if you're doing it on your PC. You know, you may be making, you know, 10 cents uh, for, for a month of letting your PC churn away at this, but you'll learn Excuse me, Aaron, can crypto. I just interrupt and ask you, sure. what kind of setup, of technical setup, were you able to put together in order to mine Bitcoin? Well, okay, back in 2013, you just did it on your PC, you know, with spare, you let it run at night while you weren't uh, uh, using it. Today, to be competitive at mining, you need highly specialized equipment and need to be next door to a hydroelectric plant. Um, so I'm not urging people to go and do this to, to, to make money. I'm just saying you do it. You really learn what cryptocurrency is when you mine it and you spend it. And before you invest in something, it's always nice to, you know, make it and sell it. And then you say, okay, okay now I know. Maybe it was only 10 cents worth. And maybe you used it to, you know, uh, uh, buy something you didn't really want. But, uh, but, but, but you know what you're doing yeah. uh, in a way that somebody who's just read about Bitcoin uh, doesn't. And you learn an awful lot about exactly what it is, what a key is, how these work, and, and how convenient it is. Yeah. Um, so, so for Fidelity, I think, I think you know, it, it makes perfect sense. I don't think they're going to go in the business of mining uh, to compete with uh, some of these Chinese giant consortiums, but it does give them a lot of legitimacy in the space, and it's given them a lot of legitimacy among crypto enthusiasts, the fact they're actually willing to get their hands dirty with this stuff. A lot of financial people who talk about crypto have never, you know, spent a Bitcoin and wouldn't know what it is if, you know, somebody gave them 100 Well, one thing that I'm struck by is it seems on its face as if this is a risk that Fidelity is taking, getting into sort of a more nascent market, one that is uh, that is spurned by a lot of people. On the other hand, I'm wondering how much is a move like this, is a risk like this required for big asset managers that focus on index funds that increasingly pay uh, zero fees or next to nothing in terms of fees? I mean, in other words, how much do these types of services have to be the drivers of profitability to place like Fidelity going forward? Okay, I'm not an expert in Fidelity's business. I know more on the hedge fund side, but I do know, yes, everybody in asset management is desperate for new kinds of revenue because the fee compression we've gotten so efficient with ETFs, with index funds at free now, many places. Uh, you just can't make money, you know, just for existing the way you used to. And so, yeah, you need some sort of value added. Uh, crypto is one, you know, way where there's still margins, you can still differentiate yourself. You know, there are other things you could do. But yes, I think we're going to be seeing more experimentation, more risk-taking among asset managers. And the ones that refuse, the ones that try to keep just the traditional business alive, uh, I can't see them. I just see the profits slowly eroding until nobody wants to work there anymore. Aaron, just real quick here, how profitable do you think a cryptocurrency uh, department, the way that Fidelity is sort of outlining one, could be? 
Well, if they're the only one, you know, or if they're, if they're you know, the, the giant one, then I think it could be tremendously uh, profitable. I think there's a lot of money that wants to go into crypto, and uh, and it, it's kind of for you know, you buy the crypto on a currency exchange, you sell it to your customers, you keep it in yeah. cold storage, costs you nothing, right. and you can probably charge pretty good fees on it. If everybody in the world gets into this business, and you know, the fees are going to go down to zero, just like everything else. Aaron Brown, thank you so much for being with us. We love having your views uh, highlighted here. Aaron Brown is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, also former managing director and head of financial market research at AQR Capital Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.